Why Abraham? That's the question. That's the only question today. Why Abraham? Why Abraham? That's not really the only question, but it's basically the only question. The answer is why not? Ah, okay. Good. Why not? Why not? The question we're going to have to... What? Because his name became with an A. Yeah, start with A, right? He's honest, right? So we have to figure out what we're going to try to do tonight. What we try to do tonight is, to the best of our ability, is to figure out not just why Abraham, but why are we introduced to Abraham in this sort of bizarre way. And I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. So let's start by reading source number one, the first five verses of Parshas Lechacha, where we are not really first introduced to Abraham. Abraham really comes on the scene at the end of Parshas Noah, the way end. But he's not spoken to by God. He's not the Abraham that we know and love until the beginning of Parshas Lechacha. Um, and just, you'll notice that he's called Avram at this point. A- Abram. Because right, his name becomes changed later on. So right now, we refer to him as, as Avraham, but at that point in the Torah, they're referring to him only as Avram. Okay. Who wants to read uh, from the beginning? Now the Lord said, up, said to Avram, Get you out of your country and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Get out. Lech lecha. Leave. Okay. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Avram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Avram was seventy and five years old when he departed Haran. And Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had made in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and to the land of Canaan they came. Okay. And the souls they made. Oh, excellent. Good. What does that refer to? Sorry? What does that refer to? Rashi says that... Their babies. So, does not refer to their babies, right? Because they don't, they don't have children yet. Right, they only have a child through miraculous means. There's clearly not their children. Um, there's, Rashi gives two explanations. He says one is that it just means very simply they're slaves. But the other possibility he says is they're, it doesn't say the people, it says the nefesh. A nefesh is the souls. So Rashi explains that it was the people who they had converted. The people who became part of their group, who were into, who were into the whole monotheism thing, and they came and went with them to the land of Canaan. Does this mean that uh, Abraham has a religion of some sort? What do you think? I don't know about that. <laughs> Does Abraham have a religion at this point? No. Not that we know of. It depends what you mean by religion. You know, he believes in God. He right, he believes in God, well, clearly. clearly. There's something differentiating him from the pagans around him. Okay. There's something going on. It's okay. called monotheism. Like, how is it defined as, like, where is it? Good. At this point, it's not, certainly not Jewish. Abraham is certainly not Jewish. That's for sure. He is the father of Judaism. He's also the father of, of Islam. So, you know, he's a father of a lot of things. Is he also the father of everything else, too? No. Uh, Every other religion? No. Not as far as we know. Not as far as we know. He, he's usually referred to as the father of monotheism, but 
Good. <clears throat> but I'll, I'll ask you the following question. Um, God makes a lot of nice promises to Abraham. He's going to have a good life. He's going to help him out. He's going to protect him. I've got your back. Um, why is God doing this to Abraham? Why is he offering this to him? How do you know that? Huh? How do you know that? I don't. I'm just saying. That's why he was selected. He's the one that figured it out. Okay, so... How do we figure it out? Oh, so... We figured it out. Who told you he figured it out? Clearly, the American. How do you know? Because he was telling everyone. Who said that? The 70 souls of the That's a midrash that he brought people with him. Where do you know from the text that we have here that Abraham even believed in God? Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Afterwards, he listens and he goes. But do we know anything about anything that Abraham has done up until now which tells me why God is talking to him? No, nothing. What are we told when Noah... I should have brought it here. I'm sorry, I forgot. What are we told when Noah... The beginning of the story of Noah. And he's chosen... Noah's also chosen by God to build, a, to build the ark. Is he supposed to make peace between like, the earth and the people or leave them from like... Okay, but what does it say very simply why God chooses Noah? Ish Sadiq. Noah was a righteous person. Tabim Hayab Adarasav. He was a pure, righteous soul. So why did God choose Noah? If I asked the same question at the beginning of last week's parsha, why did God choose Noah, what would you say? He was a Tzadik. Okay, good. He was a Tzadik. Good. We usually know righteous people get. God likes those types of people. Good. What do we talk about Abraham? Nothing. We're told that God says, go. Go to some place I'm going to show you. And we're not told, he's not even told where. But he's given a lot of promises about good things, a lot of better things that happened to him that happened to Noah. But at the same time, we're not given any background as to how it is that we got here. Chose what? To believe in God. Are you sure? Well, when he listened to God, we already know that he believes in God. But God still then didn't promise him anything. When he told him, get out of your country, before that he promised him anything, still in the river. This was the pure faith. Okay. Do we know that he believes in God before God speaks to him? Just to play devil's advocate? Does, do we know that he believes in God before God speaks to him? It says he so he, he listens to God once God speaks to him. I, I think you're probably right. I think you can assume that someone to whom God is speaking has a certain amount of belief in him. Right. Right. Did that make him unique than listening to God at that time? Okay, good. So, let, let's, so let's keep going. Good. So the, the question is, I think an okay question. It's not my question. It's a question a lot of the commentaries ask. In fact, um, I'll show you. Look at source number four for a minute. Switch all the way to Nachmanides, the Ramban. Source number four. I'm just going to read the beginning of the passage just to show you that I didn't make up the question. Let me see where I am. 
page 3, source number 4, Ramban, commentary on Genesis 12.2. Says the Ramban, this passage does not clarify all the issues involved. What sense was there in the Almighty ordering him to leave his birthplace and offering him unprecedented rewards without prefacing that Abraham had deserved it by being loyal to God, or being righteous, or by telling him that by leaving his birthplace and going to another country, he would attain a greater nearness to God? It is more usual to find such phrases as, quote, walk before me and hearken to my voice and I'll reward you, as in the case of David and Solomon, or such conditional clauses as, if you walk in my statutes, or if you hearken to the Lord your God. In the case of Isaac, the Almighty blessed him for my servant Abraham's sake. But surely there's no sense in promising reward and blessing on account of leaving his country. So Ramban's asking, actually asking a little bit better. He's saying, even if you're right, Penny, he listens. Okay, good, he listens. I mean, once God tells him to go, he offers him a lot. Good, so you're at, you're, what you're saying is that, I think you're right, what you're saying is what the Ramban is asking. The Ramban is saying, if the whole reward he's getting is for just from now on, where he listens and follows God's command to leave his land, it seems like a pretty big reward for a pretty small action. It's not so small, but it's saying it can't only be because of the fact that he lust. So, Good, good. We're going to come back to all this. Is that, you're making excellent points. We're going to come back to all this. But don't Jews normally question? What? Jews at the time. Oh, that's true. That makes it all right. <laughs> <laughs> that mediates everything. Um, yes and no. And that's what we're going to... Yes and no. Yes and no. You're right. What part of makes Jews is that we question, that we ask. But there is a point, and maybe we'll talk about that towards the end, at which we do. Right? The Jewish people, when they receive the Torah at Sinai, how do they respond when God says, are you ready for the Torah? They say, Na'aseh v'nishma. We'll, we'll do it. Na'aseh, we'll do. V'nishma. And then we'll understand. Because at a certain point, there has to be, we're not only doing because we understand, sometimes we're doing because you're God. Which we're going to see is a, a trait that Abraham seems to possess. Can I take a step back? Uh, you can. So it says uh, Abraham left his 70 souls with him. It doesn't say 70, it just says, 70 is by Jacob, I think we're thinking, but okay. it just said the nefesh, the, the people that he brought. Okay, did, did, did Abraham create his own soul in this case by realizing that God is one? No, I don't think so. Yeah. He's given a soul like everybody else. Okay. It's a regular person like everybody else. Alright. I think. Well, that brings the question, think. and then, God made all souls like way back before. Yeah, but I'm not going to be able to answer this question, I don't think. Sorry? I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer this question. Oh. <laughs> okay, but let's let's keep moving ahead. Now, I'll, I'll tell you the question is even a little bit better. Um, why? Because of the following midrash in source number two. Source number two is the midrash in Breshis Rabbah. It says as follows. Someone want to read source number two? Uh, Eric. Breshis Rabbah. Rabbi Azariah began... We tried to heal Babylonia, but she could not be healed. Leave her, and let each of us go back to his land. Okay, that's a line in Yermio, in Jeremiah. So the Midrash is going to explain a subtle underlying meaning of this verse. We tried to heal Babylonia, and then 
the generation of Enosh, she could not be healed. In the generation of Enosh. Come. She could not be healed in the generation of the flood. Okay. Next. Leave her in the generation of the dispersion. And let each of us go back to his land. And God said to Abraham, go for yourself. A little bit enigmatic, right? But what, is it, what does it seem to say? That there's a progression here. Right? The generation of Enosh is a generation right after Adam, which we'll see in a minute, was the generation where idolatry really began. The generation of Noah, that is the generation of the flood, that again, God tries again. It starts with Adam, doesn't work. Right, yeah, gives Adam one commandment, and Adam and Eve, the only people in the world, they blow it. We spoke about that, right? Then he comes to the generation of Enosh, which is the generation of Noah, basically, or which is part of the generation of Enosh, I guess. Then we get the generation of Noah. Again, God tries to get everybody to do what they got to do. Doesn't work. Fine. So he gives them the seven Noahide laws, which is. Again, speaking to the entire... It wasn't just Noah. It was not just about Noah. It was about all of the people at the time of Noah. He gives all of them the seven Noah laws. It's not for one specific group. And what happens? doesn't work. We get to the Tower of Babel. Again, Tower of Babel, they have a unity. They have a lot of things going for them. But again, they can't get it together. God has to disperse them. It's not working. So what does God decide to do? Says the Midrash. And God said to Abraham, Go for yourself. That Avraham is sort of the sort of the, cha- the game changer. That at the beginning, God is looking to speak to all of mankind and his children and say, look, let's get this together. I'm God. You're a man. We can hang out together if you will listen to what I do. And everyone says, no, thanks God. We're not really interested in that. And it happens sort of three times that the people say we're not really interested. This group is not interested for different reasons. So finally God says, you know what, I can't speak to the entire group. They're not ready as a whole to be addressed. So what do I have to do? Start with one person. Through that person, I'm going to build a nation which will eventually, hopefully, shed light on the entire world. That's what the Jewish people are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be a people that then close ourselves off from the rest of the world. We're supposed to be what we call Orla Goyim, light onto the nations. So God now has chosen one person to start this new plan. So the question begs itself again, if it's only one person, this person should have done something to make him worthy. The one guy now, it's all in his hands. And at this, at this point the story begins, we don't know anything about him. And it's sort of interesting. Okay. Okay. Good. So look in source number three first, which is the Rambam, Maimonides, and the Mishnah Torah. So the Rambam, when he wrote his, all that he did, right? The Rambam. Not to be confused with the Ramban, right? Rambam with an M. Moshe, Ben, Ben, Maimon. Two most famous works. Guide to the perplexed. 
known in Hebrew as the Moreh Nevuchim. Is that the one you wrote when he was 19? Uh, I believe, um, he was 19? Could be, yeah, he was pretty young, I believe so. Um, this is a work, what type of work? Morning of Uchem, God's the Perplex. Jewish law, philosophy. Guy, yeah, but it's in what? Law, philosophy, what? It's a, it's a, philo- it's a, philo- it's Jewish philosophy, right? It's a philosophical work. Okay. He also wrote another very important book, referred to as the Mishnah Torah. This is Jewish law. It's quoted zillions of times in the Code of Jewish Law, in the Shulchan Aruch, the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, probably his most famous work. The Rambam in his Mishnah Torah, the introduction to the Mishnah Torah, he, um, introduction, sorry, to the laws of idolatry, which are very specific about the laws of what happens if a person what, what's really considered idolatry, what's not considered idolatry, how does it work, how, what's a good way to do it if you want to get in trouble, what you stay away from, etc. What can you sell to with idolatry, all these types of questions. So he begins it, the entire first chapter, with a story. Okay? And the story begins with the generation of Enosh, like we spoke about before, we don't have it here. He basically talks about how it is that people came to idolatry, because the world wasn't created with idolatry, the world was created with Adam and Eve, who clearly believed in God. They knew about God. How do we know? They talked to God all the time. Adam and Eve certainly were not idolaters. And neither were Cain and Abel. So at some point, the world came to idolatry. How did it happen? So he tells a story, and he says that basically, during the times of Enosh, the the people basically said, look at this, wow. Look at the stars and the moon and the the sun. God created those. They're really amazing. No, we should do. We should all get together. We should pray and bow down to the stars and the moon and the sun as a way of reflecting our reverence for God. Because this is, after all, what God created. So they start to do that and they start to have these rituals where they pray to the stars and the moon and the sun. At this point, they're still believing in God. There's one God and that's who they pray to, but they worship the the stars and the moon and the sun as that sort of intermediary. And then what happens is the generations go on they, what do the children know? Well, what do we do when we pray? We pray to the stars. And they build temples and all kinds of things to the stars. And slowly, slowly, over the generations, people forget that there's a God behind everything. And they become, basically, the word for that's used all over rabbinic literature for a person who's an idolater is the word avodak oh, chavim. You ever heard the word akum? Akum refers to... Akum is Oved Kochavim Umazalo, a person who worships stars. Put it here. Oved Kochavim Umazalo, worshiper of stars and. Um, and in English, Mazalo? Not planets? Uh, not planets. Um, like astrology. Zodiac. Zodiac. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, sort of, something like that. 
Fine. That's how we refer to um, idolatry in rabbinic literature. Akum, all the time. People who worship the stars. Like that's where it started. Okay. So the Rambam tells this whole story. He says, and this is what the whole world was doing, and they were building temples, and they were building idols, and it became, the whole world was idolatrous. Great. Let's start now in source number three. The Rambam continues the story. And the Rambam didn't make up the story. He got it from the Midrash, which came way before him. What does it say? The world continued in this fashion until the pillar of the world, the patriarch Abraham, was born. After this mighty man was weaned, he began to explore and think. Though he was a child, he began to think incessantly throughout the day and night, wondering how is it possible for the sphere to continue to revolve without having anyone controlling it? Who is causing it to revolve? Apparently, he believes that Abraham knew that the world was round. Okay? I don't know if that's possible he knew that, but okay. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. Rather, he was mired in poor esteem among the foolish idolaters. His father, mother, and all the people around him were idol worshippers, and he would worship with them. Amazing. He would worship with them. Abraham was an idolater. Okay? However, his heart was exploring and gaining understanding. Ultimately, he appreciated the way it proved and understood the path of righteousness through his accurate comprehension. He realized that there was one God who controlled the sphere and that he created everything and that there was no other God among all the other entities. He knew that the entire world was making a mistake. What caused them to err was their service of the stars and images which made them lose awareness of the truth. Abraham was 40 years old when he became aware of his creator. When he recognized and knew him, he began to formulate replies to the inhabitants of Ur Kastim and debate with them, telling them that they were not following the prophet. The other other approaches in the other Midrashim would say that he was actually three years old when he realized. But anyways, yeah, keep on going. He broke their idols and began to teach the people that it is fitting to serve only the God of the world. To him alone is it fitting to bow down sacrifice and offer libations so that the people of future generations would recognize him. Conversely, it is fitting to destroy and break all the images lest all the people err concerning them, like those people who thought that there are no other gods besides these images. When he overcame them through the strength of his arguments, the king desired to kill him. He was saved through a miracle and left for Haran. Haran. This is the the famous story of Abraham being thrown into the fiery furnace. That he decides that uh, Nimrod, who's the king at that time, he's he's basing this on the Midrash, which says that Nimrod, his father actually, brings him to Nimrod. And Nimrod asks him, do you believe in one God or do you believe in idols? And he says, if you say you believe in one God, I'm throwing you in the furnace. And he goes and he says, one God, and they throw him in. And he comes out alive. Okay. His brother then is sitting and waiting, and the Midrash says that his brother said to himself while he's waiting, let me see what happens to my brother. If my brother goes in and he's okay, then I'm with him. If not, then not. So he, go, he gets thrown in and he dies too. And that's, Rashi explains that's what it means that, that um, he dies, he, his son, his, this brother, Haran, also I guess near to the same place, um, it's the, the Torah says that he dies young, Zalot's father. And Rashi explains it was this story that caused that. Anyways. 
there he began to call in a loud voice to all people and informed them that there is one God in the entire world and it is proper to serve him. He would go out and call to the people, gathering them in city after city and country after country until he came to the land of Canaan, proclaiming God's existence the entire time as Genesis 21:33 states, and he called there in the name of the Lord, the eternal God. When the people would gather around him and ask him about his statements, he would explain them to each one of them according to their understanding until they turned to the path of truth. Ultimately, thousands and myriads gathered around him. These are, these are the men of the house of Abraham. So these are the people who, again, Nefesh Hashem, these people who came with him, these are the people that were, we, we read about later that he gets his, his people together to go to war. Who are these people? Same people. Fine. It's a very nice story. Um, what's more interesting about it is that it's found not here. It's found here. Which is fascinating. It's found in, in the Mishnah Torah. It's a very bizarre place for the Rambam to write such a story. Um... Uh, what's interesting, I think, is that usually Midrash, again, there are different schools of thought, but Midrash, according to many, is not always meant to be ten, taken as the literal things that happened, stories that happened. This Midrash seems to be taken by most of the commentaries to have happened. They believe that it happened. Um, Where did you get the number three years old? No, there, were, there are other, other versions of the Midrash that say he was three years old. But 40 things seems to make more sense, but yeah. yeah. About uh, Noah, the Parashah before, it's uh, written, still based on the Midrash. That's still assuming a Midrash. Right? I mean, the words, the words, I mean, saying saying that Avram got up and he walked and he went, that's true, he got up and he traveled. We still don't know why. To say that he was because of what happened in Ur Kasdim, you're right, that that story comes before, and the Midrash tells us, Avram was thrown into the fiery furnace. But again, the Torah has not told me yet. If you're reading the Torah and you're just starting the story, you don't know anything that happened to Abraham. We have this whole elaborate story, which we believe happened. But again, it's not there in the text. Right. So I said, maybe because of the catastrophe that was in Orkast but maybe that uh, he was in any process of uh, trying to reach to God. Okay. And this is why he walked to Haram. Okay. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that it's because of what happened. Maybe... I, I'm not saying what the Midrash is saying is mm-hmm. nonsense. Right. No, no, correct. Generations are telling that there is any truth. Right. For any, uh, he, he began with his uh, spiritual 
journey beforehand. And like the even for the this walking to Haran, mm-hmm. and then to arrive to higher level, and first he got the the uh, order from God. Let me have go continue go continue new voice right. in your world. Uh, you're correct. I, I agree with it, and we're going to come back to that for sure at the end, that that is what's going on with Abraham. My question still is, why does, this is a pretty cool story. It's a nice story. It's pretty amazing. You would think that if we're trying to introduce the concept of one God, start with the story of a person who found one God. Assuming the story is correct, the story is true, so the Torah should tell us the story. And the question is, why does the Torah not tell us? Why is this part taken out? And we're going to try to suggest three possible answers. Okay? Answer number one is going to come from the Ramban. So let's go back. We're now back up to source number four. And I want to continue to uh, see what the Ramban has to say. Where it says, but the real reason... So the real reason for the divine promise was the fact that the Chaldeans, 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 I think. Chaldeans. I persecuted Abraham for his faith in God. He had fled from them in the direction of the land of Canaan and had tarried in Haran. Then God appeared to him and told him to leave and go on further as he intended to do. what Ben Zion said. In order to serve him and rally other men to yeah, God in the chosen land where his name would become great, and the nations there would be blessed through him. Unlike his experience in Chaldea, where he had been despised and reviled for his faith and thrown into the furnace, in the new land he would bless them that blessed him and any individual who would curse him would himself be cursed. Now God now basically says, I appreciate all the work you've done so far without me. Just like you were saying, Ben Zion. And now he says, now I'm going to protect you. Now I'm going to take care of you. Continue. I love what you're doing. Keep it going, but now I'm going to help you out. Good. So then why doesn't the Torah tell us the story? But the Torah did not wish to elaborate on the opinions of the idol worshippers and dwell on the religious issues in Abraham's controversies with the Chaldeans. Just the same as the Torah deals very briefly with the generation of Enosh and their innovations and idolatrous beliefs. So what does this mean? I didn't really... It took me a while to... Digest this answer. Yes, what does that mean? Is that is that what it means? obviously it wasn't relevant to the point that was trying to be made. Or it was, wasn't suggesting there should be any kind of idol worship forgiving people didn't sometimes do it. Okay. Um, I thought perhaps the reason why it wasn't there was because there isn't one set path to recognizing God's oneness. That's a nice idea. I like that. We thought it was number four. So maybe. Else. And maybe we will. I like that idea. Hold on to that. Okay. Don't remember that you said that. No, remember that you said that. But what, what, I like your idea, but that's first we got what the Ramban said. I, I like that a lot. What does Ramban have to say? What does he say? Why not tell the story? Abraham's fighting with the with the idolaters and explains to them. It makes no sense when you read my kid, uh, my daughter. My daughter has a has a parsha book 
you know, about each parsha, you know, tells different stories to kids. This book, you can't get, you don't get to the actual lechlecha for like, you know, ten pages. Because the whole beginning of the book is this story. You tell the kids, Abraham, he smashed the idols, and he put, and then he smashed all the idols and put the hammer in one idol's hand, and then he, his father comes in and says, who did this? And he says, it was that idol. He goes, that idol, that idol can't do that. He goes, really? What are you banging down to it for, right? It was like, with clever tricks, you know, that the Midrash says that Adam did. But, so why, why won't we have this back and forth fighting the polemics between Abraham and the idolaters? Why don't we have any of this here? Why not? It's definitely relevant. Well, it's just, it's just it's so wrong. It doesn't matter. It's just... You don't need that. <laughs> it's, it's, what, what do you mean? Good. What does that mean? It's an it's it's affront. It's a little to God. And it just, you know, he doesn't want to dwell on it. Okay. He's cutting, to, he's cutting to the chase. Yeah. Is it just cutting to the chase? Or is it more than that? I thought when he first said that, when I first read it, I thought he was saying he's cutting to the chase. Come on, we don't need all this. Let's just get going already. Perhaps he doesn't, he doesn't want, the Torah doesn't want to suggest that if you believe in one God, that they'll be persecuted. Because people might not want to do that. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Is it by giving uh, attention to that which is negative increases the negative energy elicited from... Okay, more you know, than that. Saying? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I, hear what you're, I totally hear what you're saying. The question is, is that what the Ramban is saying? But I hear what you're, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Well, by ignoring it, then you ignore the, the negative aspect, so therefore it's not in, involved in your whatever you're trying to do here. Okay. You have to be careful with negative energy. Right. 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 Anything else? I think we're almost there. Yeah. I like what you... Yeah? It's all leading up to, to Moses. So okay. What is relevant to leading up to Moses? Is it a story about idols necessary? Who cares? You know, here comes Abraham. That's all we need to know. Okay. That's the background. That's all the background of Moses. Right, but he says something very interesting. He says, the Torah did not wish to elaborate on the opinions of the idol worshippers and dwell on the religious issues in Abraham's controversies with the Chaldeans. And he says it's similar to the fact that they didn't talk about the door Enosh. Who is Enosh? We mentioned at the beginning, the people who started idolatry. God could have told that story also. And all these people forgot about God, and they start worshipping idols and building temples. We don't tell that story either. So we also don't tell the story of Abraham fighting them. Why not? It seems to me, I think some of what you were saying, Stuart, that it's almost like the Torah is going to put us on a path now where we understand that there's a God. We start with that God creates the heaven and earth. It's very clear there's a God. There's no question there's God. And then we, we're going to head now. Some people make some mistakes on the way, not listening to God. But now we're ready for Abraham to take us to the creation of the Jewish people. The foundation of that is that there's one God. And we're going to not just believe it, but we're also going to do, act on it. So to, to have this conversation about, well, maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't a God, most of them didn't really believe that anyways, it starts to detract from the message. The message is supposed to be a clear message. There's a God. And if we start with this back and forth, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Not that it's not an important exercise for a person to have, but it's not important for it to be in the Torah. Because it, it gives the Torah leading credence to this possibility that's not true. 
which according to the Torah is not even a possibility. Right, but we also have to be honest and you know true. Okay. Right. Right. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. I just, it shouts to me, so show me how he discovered it. That's so amazing. That's so cool. And, and part of the answer is that the Ramban is, I don't know if the Ramban is the best answer. We're going to see two more. But the answer is, yeah, but it doesn't fit. We don't want to talk like that. The Torah doesn't want to have a discussion about, well, maybe there's a guy, maybe there isn't. That's not part of our discussion. The Torah assumes there is. There is a God. Now let's move forward. And sort of we start, we don't even talk about it. Even this amazing story that happened, we don't discuss it. Why? Because we don't want to go there. Because that's not, it's, not a, it's almost not relevant. Even though it's very relevant. But in the beginning, we thought that you know, there was a, it was good to have luminaries, right? God's talking to himself uh, What do you mean like? Like sun and moon and the stars? Uh, our, sure, that's good. Yeah, we need them. We would die, right? That's sun. Yeah, but uh, you know, even there, there's more than it's for El Elokim, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's plural. Okay. So if, if idol worshiping refers to, I guess, uh, something that not, I guess that we more than well, at least it works for more than one God. Why is it that uh, that we leave out this idea? of more than one God. You mean like we say that Hashem says Nasah Adam, like let's make man? Yes. And it's like, exactly. whoa, we don't let's make man. It makes it sound like there are many gods. Right? And he says, right, not let's. He talks a couple times. He says, by the Tower of Bovel also, Nerda, let's go down and see what's going on there. You're right. We have that happen a couple times. And uh, their commentaries will explain that it's God doing that to show his humility, to show how even God, you know, asks the angels what they think, even though he doesn't really need them. But you're right. So you're saying that, and the, the, the Rashi himself writes, and if there can be some people who are going to learn from here that there's more than one God, look, if they want to make a mistake, they'll, make their own, they'll, they'll stumble on their own mistakes. It's clear there's only one God. Yeah, they want to point to something like that is their problem. You're right. Well, you start from right from the beginning. God created heaven and earth, and it's a straight path, and there's junk goes on along the way. We're not interested in that. We don't talk about all of it. This is the path for Right. Okay. It's just not relevant. Good. Good. You made the distinction a couple of times with us that um, sort of the difference between sort of background mm-hmm. and the point. Mm-hmm. And, and the point is this here the background is important for background, but it's not important for the point. Okay, good. I like that. And I think we're going to get, get there soon. I think you're right. I have a question. I don't know if it's the right question. Why and when would you make? We're going to talk. We're going to talk about it. Uh, it's going to happen within these next two portions. So they, the, the name gets changed, but um, it happens actually in <coughs> happened in this week's parsha. It happens in Vayera. I think it, is, it happens in this week's parsha. It's, it's when it happens, but uh, that's definitely relevant. Okay, fine. So let's see another possible answer. The second answer is, is an answer given by Nechama Leibovitz. 
And she explains as follows. We look in the Midrash in source number five. Also from Bracious Rabbah, says a very interesting thing. And again, an exegesis of a, of a, a verse somewhere, totally somewhere else, a verse in Psalms. Source five. It is written, Similarly, similarly, the Holy One, blessed be, he does not try the wicked, but the righteous, as it is said, but the righteous, as it is said, God examines the righteous. Well, <laughs> What is that? What? So, so what? Why does she quote this midrash? He tries the wicked, but not... Tries the righteous. Yes, he gives tests yes. to the righteous. When I was, when I, before I got married, we were going to, uh, to pick out China. Uh, register and the lady. I remember the lady at Crate and Barrel. She took a thing of China and she slammed it on the table. Ah! Where she? She only does that thing she knows aren't right, right? To show me how strong it is. Carnival. What? Carnival. It was not a carnival. No. It can't be China. It's <laughs> <laughs> Did it break? So, uh, so um, what's the point? You were talking about righteous. Right. So who who withstands a lot of trials in his life? Righteous. Yeah. Which one specifically? Abraham. How many trials? Ten. Kirkyavo say. It says in the Ethics of Abraham that Abraham has been ten trials. Um, says Nacham Leibovitz, you don't think we have enough proof as to why Abraham is Abraham? God is not going to choose a person who would flop in all these different tests. So maybe we don't know the story yet. But we find out the story very quickly. We find out very fast who this person is and what he's made of. And the fact that God chooses him, even, I guess even before that, the fact that he chooses him for the test, or again, who's making the choice, God, already shows you that there must have been something that God saw in him that made him work. And so to ask the question, even at the beginning, well, why in the world is God choosing him? Is, well, if God is starting now this series of tests with Abraham, it must be that there's something there, even if we don't know. Because again, it's not, we always say, it's not a regular book. And it's a book that's here to teach us something very specific, and the one running the show is God, so it changes the game a little bit. So when a story begins, and we don't even know who Abraham is, okay. But God chose him now for this, for these tests. Therefore, it, man, it's backwards logic. Therefore, it must be he was worthy. Oh, that he would pass the test? Well, he knew he, he knew he would pass the test. The Rambam himself writes this. He knew he would pass the test, but, but he didn't have, but Abraham had the choice of whether to, whether to succeed or fail. Exactly. This is a, again, this is a little bit of a... So he knew he could pass the test, or he knew he would pass the test? He knew he would, he knew whether he would or not. But that's, that's completely different than could. If, he could, if God knew that he could pass the test, right. then he would have a chance of failing. If God knew that he would pass the test, then there is no chance of failing. But the Rambam asks exactly your question in the laws of Shuvah. He asks this very same question. He says, we know that God knows is above time, so God knows exactly what's going to happen. At the same time, we have free will to choose. Whether, so he says, if, I, if God already knows what I'm going to do, how do I have free will? 
He says, good question. I don't know the answer. So I, I don't know. I always thought, what do you mean? What's the big deal? God knows what I'm going to choose, but it's my choice. But again, that's a little bit beyond the scope of our... They're not inconsistent, right? I mean, God can know what, what choices you're going to make. That's, that's why I was saying. It doesn't bother me. You still get to make the choices. But apparently the Rambam was bothered by this. So, I guess I'm not a philosopher. Let <laughs> me tell you. Um, it would have been better if it was TV with that time. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be over in an hour. <laughs> Too much time on this. That was an at symbol. Okay. All right. Yeah? Sorry. The fact that God shows him revealed that he was at least worthy of being tested. Tested. Sorry, I'm not... Uh... Okay. That doesn't explain why not to tell the story from the beginning. It's, it's a... It basically tells you, don't be so bothered, at least. It kind of negates the question. It says that, okay, so it doesn't really matter that God doesn't tell us, tell us why. We don't need to know why. Because the fact that he's chosen tells us. Okay. But I want to take a look now at one more source. I love him, right? I love him. What can I tell you? But he's only on, he's only on uh, Genesis. So, uh, so once we're at, well, it gives us a bunch of weeks. But by next semester, I'm not going to have him anymore, so. Mechamba Leibovitz and Rabbi Sachs right now. Who's Mechamba Leibovitz? Good question. Mechamba Leibovitz was a teacher in Jerusalem in the mid-1900s. Mid, I mean, she, when she passed away? She? The 80s or the 90s? When did she pass away? 20 years ago. Yeah. She was a very revered teacher. She, believe it or not, an Orthodox woman. An Orthodox woman. I know that was talking to she. No, because he, he said she. She's not a rabbi. It's the only woman. I'm... <laughs> she, um, she is fascinating. They said in the University of Berlin in 1930, there were three famous personalities: Joseph B. Soloveitchik, the Rav, right? Not sure happened. Rav Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Chamelevitz. And they say there were people say they were in the same classes together. Imagine that was like, but. Uh, um, Anyway, so she was a very, very famous teacher. She's famous for her way, her, even her books, the books that, she never wrote any books, but the books that they have of her ideas are basically the lessons that she gave, which are really teaching teachers how to teach more than anything else. She gives you questions to think about. She doesn't give you a complete thought. She brings a number of sources and makes some interesting points and then gives you questions for further study. She doesn't really give you a full idea. But her point is to kind of to take very careful look at the way the text is set up and how it's built, and she was very, you know, famous for that. She, she and her brother used to be weekly by the lesson, by the radio. By the radio. Yes. People would go to her house. Like, they would go to her house. Like, the and there were, like, groups of people who would go and sit and learn with her. It was, like, a long experience. Okay. Says Rabbi Saxon, source number six. Prior to Abraham... All four dramas of Genesis dealt with the evasion and abdication of responsibility. 
Adam denies personal responsibility. Cain denies moral responsibility. Noah fails the test of collective responsibility. And Babel was a rejection of ontological responsibility. The idea that the imperative comes from a source beyond the self. Abraham represents the turning point, offering a counterpoint to the previous failures. Unlike Adam, Abraham accepts personal responsibility, heeding the word of God and setting out on a journey in obedience to the divine call. Adam is exiled from Eden against his will. Abraham undergoes a kind of voluntary exile, bidding farewell to the familiar in search of the unknown, guided only by the voice of God. Unlike Cain, he accepted moral responsibility, rescuing his nephew Lot from war. He is his brother's, more precisely, his brother's son's keeper, the very principle that Cain denied. Abraham knows that we have duties not only to ourselves, but to others. This is the moral sense. In contrast to Noah, he accepts collective responsibility. He prays to the inhabitants of Sodom, even though he knows they are sinful, on the grounds that there may be innocent, righteous people among them. They are not his brothers, not his kin, not part of his specific covenant with God, but they are human beings. And Abraham feels the imperative of praying, even arguing with God, on their behalf. It's interesting, the, uh, the Midrash, when it talks about Noah, says that, that Noah was righteous in his generation. So the Rashi quotes the Midrash that says that if Noah was living in, in the generation of Abraham, people wouldn't even know who he was. And the question is, what do you mean people wouldn't even know who he was? <laughs> Abraham was the only righteous person. You'd have one other person who believed in God. You'd probably know who Noah was. So I heard an explanation that, no, it's not true. Because Abraham understood the concept of responsibility for other people. Noah, in his 120 years of building the ark, how many people did he bring in to join him? Yeah, zero. Nobody. Just his family. But he saved the animals. Again, he was a tzaddik in his own way. But he didn't reach out to anybody else. So therefore... What? Okay. I don't know if God tells Abraham to either. Okay, but hold on a second. So... I heard the following explanation. This Midrash says that if Noah was alive in, gen- in Abraham's generation, nobody would even know who he was. He would be nothing. Why? Because Abraham lives in this open tent, and Noah lives by himself. And even though he would be righteous, he would be by himself. Again, does it really mean he would literally be by himself? But the idea is the same idea. That Abraham takes it to the next level. In contrast to the builders of Bavel, he understands ontological responsibility. The duty of human beings to respond to the otherness, the command of God. This is the basis of the greatest of his trials, his willingness to sacrifice even his son, if God so commands it. Abraham knows that we are but dust and ashes in the face of the infinite. He does not try to build a tower to heaven. His task is to obey the will of heaven on earth. I love quoting him because he writes beautifully. But I'll tell you, Rabbi Sachs is not talking about our question. He's writing about Abraham separately. So the, the question is, what does this have to do with our question? So Abraham is everything different from everyone else who's coming for him. We learned later on why he was different. So it doesn't give us a prequel. We learned what it must have been. Okay. So certainly what we find out 
But what we need to all we need to know about it is I started to say this before. It's not really what Nacham Levi says. This is more what I guess I'm saying uh, with Rabbi Sachs is that all we need to know about Abraham we certainly find out later. Where he, he is above and beyond any. You just think about the difference of the personalities we've seen in those last few weeks. Now the personality of Abraham, the difference in the type of person that this that this person is is leaps and bounds. You can't even compare. Yeah. Abraham began, it began the way of not only recognizing the only God, because we can see before and also after him, like with Malchit Sedek, there were other people that also believed in one God. Right, we have a story of Malchit Sedek who, right, who says he but, believes in God. But he created a Judaism. And Judaism is not only believing in one God. What else is it? Many, many, many other things. Good. This is why his story is so long. And, and really, what he's doing is also only a small part of being a, a Jew. Good. Continues up to today. Good. And that, that's the point I want to make. And I think, again, is it true? I don't know. It's my own, my own personal idea. As follows. What we see in Abraham from his starting point and on, is not his belief in God. It's what he does with that belief. What his actions are. I had a, I had a, um, I had a baseball coach when I was in high school. His name was Coach Coco. That was his last name, Coco. So we used to have a lot of uh, interesting theological discussions. He was a Christian. I think he was a, he was a Catholic, a Roman Catholic. So he asked me once before Passover, did I tell you this story already? No. No. He asked him once before Passover. He said, um, "You know, Benny, do you believe in that whole you know, splitting the Red Sea thing?" <laughs> I said, "Sure, I do." We talked about it at the seder. He goes, "I know, you, I know it's a story, but do you believe that it really happened?" And I said, "I got to tell you, Coach Coco, I, I do. You're going to think I'm nuts, but I do. I believe that it happened." And he goes, "Don't get me wrong." He says, "I'm not very religious. You know, I think religion is more about family and hanging out." And then he goes. Of course I believe in Jesus. <laughs> and then we continue, But he said, but I'm not so religious. Fine. And it like really stood out to me. I hadn't really had a lot of... Um, had a lot to do with like people who were not Jewish at that point. So not people who were Catholic. Um, because... And he was right. Because, again, I'm not an expert in Catholic doctrine. But as long as you believe, you're in a pretty good, you're in a pretty good place. That's not the Jewish way. We, do, we don't... We have beliefs... We have a creed, but that creed is manifest indeed. And what's important to us, is it's, it's a nice, fun story to hear about how Avram came to his belief in one God, but that whole discussion is really, it, it, it's the background. Good, you believe in one God? Good, now let's do something with it. That's what Judaism is. And that's the whole purpose of the stories we're going to hear, and we're going to read, and all, that's what Sefer Bracious is. It's telling me what I do with Disbelief, and I think that maybe is, and to me, a, a nice approach as to why it is that the Torah doesn't spend all this time getting us there, because it's the background. It's something we don't really need to see yet. And if you see it, and the truth is, you see it right away, because if you look at the very first verse, what happens? And I think Penny, I think you mentioned this. Well, read page one. Right away, God speaks to him. And he tells him the first three. 
verses, he tells him exactly what's going to happen. And what's the first thing Abraham does? He goes. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, where are we going? What should I bring? Do I need a sweater? He doesn't ask. He just goes. Action. Yes. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly like, sometimes like we need to ask questions, right? But sometimes we need to just go. No questions asked. And that's what Avram teaches us. That there's a belief, and we need a belief, but the question is what do we do with it? And so, I hope, as we, uh, you know, again, as we continue to learn about Avram next week more, and then his children, we're going to see this is, this is what a Jew is. That's what a Jew is supposed to be. And it's, uh, it's a very inspiring. If we, sometimes we should read the, we read the verses, and we just see it quickly, and we don't really, never thought about it. I've read these verses a hundred times. We look about it, and we ask the questions, hopefully it gets us to a much deeper understanding. Uh, that really helps us out. Okay. All right.